The addiction crisis has already taken so much, and I grieve with all those who have lost someone. We also celebrate those who are recovering. We hold them in our hearts and commit ourselves to helping more families know the joy and relief of recovery. We're going to stand with you and get you the support and resources you need to overcome this crisis once and for all. God bless you all. In the shadow of a pandemic that has occupied our attention and claimed more than half a million lives, we can't lose sight of these other epidemics of loss, of overdose crises. You know, we, you know COVID-19 has made this situation a lot worse. In our very first episode, we discussed how at its outset, the primary cause of today's opioid epidemic was aggressive drug company marketing of a reckless lie. That the most effective and safest method of treating patients with chronic pain was to prescribe them opioids. In this episode, we will explore the consequences of that conduct and that in fact, we've been here before and yet we're here again. I am Jeffrey B. Simon, and this is Outside Counsel. Consider this. In 1886, the Journal of the American Medical Association published an article decrying the fact that there were so many opioid addicts who had become opioid addicts from prescribed opium products where the drug company claim had been, these are not addictive, unlike other pain-relieving drugs. As Yogi Berra would say, it's deja vu all over again. We've been here before, but we failed to avoid it. With that context, let's talk a bit more about what opioid addiction is, or what is sometimes called synonymously opioid use disorder. Addiction is the continued use of a drug despite negative consequences. At the pathological level, addiction is the permanent chemical alteration of the brain's motivational priorities. Opioids are addictive because they induce positive sensations like euphoria and pain relief, but abruptly discontinuing the chronic use of opioids produces withdrawal symptoms, sometimes called dope sickness. For many patients, these withdrawal symptoms are overwhelming as they can include convulsions, uncontrollable tremors, and even seizures. Pathologically, this addiction manifests itself as the individual compulsively seeking out opioids to either alleviate or avoid withdrawal symptoms at all costs. I spoke to addiction specialist and chief medical officer Dr. Andrew Kolodny, for more. You explained that the same base molecule from opium sap can be found in prescription drugs like morphine, oxycodone, and hydrocodone, but also in illicit drugs like heroin. Correct. So, yeah, what I'm really saying is that the oxycodone molecule, which is an oxycontin, or the hydrocodone molecule, these molecules, these semi-synthetic opioid molecules, and again, we're calling them semi-synthetic because they're made from the naturally occurring molecules, that they're all very similar to heroin. There was a study done at Columbia University uh, several years ago where they took 
experienced heroin users, brought them into a, a lab setting where they, they have a license to do research with heroin. This was at, uh, uh, in this lab at, at Columbia. And they gave the heroin users different opioids to self-administer. And they didn't tell them which was which. The idea was to see whether or not they liked some opioid molecules better than others. In this study, which was basically a blind taste test uh, where they compared the different opioids, the experienced heroin users actually preferred the effects of oxycodone to heroin. It wasn't statistically significant because they're, again, they're, they're, the effects are almost the same, but they liked the oxycodone a little bit more than the heroin. What does that tell you as an addiction specialist? It tells us that one of the most widely prescribed classes of drugs in the United States are essentially heroin pills. Wow. In the 1980s and early 90s, the incidence of opioid addictions was comparatively rare, and the incidence of opioid-related overdose deaths occurred rather rarely, comparatively speaking, and typically in poor urban centers where heroin addiction was more prevalent. But by 1992, more opioids were prescribed per person in America than in any other country on earth. And as opioid prescribing dramatically rose in the 1990s and 2000s, so too did cases of opioid addiction, opioid overdoses, and opioid-related deaths. During the years of 1997 to 2012, there was a 900% increase in the United States in people seeking treatment for prescription opioid addiction. And simultaneously, the rate of opioid overdose deaths nearly quadrupled. The opioid epidemic in America is now worse than ever. As reported by the Wall Street Journal, reciting CDC data, more people are dying from opioid overdoses than ever before. More than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses, mostly to opioids, during the 12-month period between April 2020 and April 21. There's no question that the COVID epidemic worsened the opioid epidemic as a result of the social isolation that became a part of the COVID epidemic people were cut off from the recovery services they needed to maintain sobriety. That is to say, they were unable to receive the in-person counseling, the human touch that can make such a difference in maintaining sobriety. Additionally, their access to medication-assisted treatment was also reduced by the same kinds of isolation. The COVID-19 shutdown became not just a disease that forms an epidemic, but also a disease of despair. And opioid addiction is too a disease of despair. As people were cut off from the world, they were cut off from human touch and crucial treatment resources. Addiction rose as much as one third during the worst parts of the COVID pandemic. And in turn, so too, did opioid overdose deaths. The recent increase in opioid overdose deaths was determined to be about 29%, which is what one would expect to find when you have a similar increase in opioid addiction. Because most people 
who die from opioid overdoses are opioid addicted. Of the over 100,000 drug-related overdose deaths that occurred between April 2020 and April 2021, approximately 75% of those involve an opioid and typically illicit fentanyl is involved. And that is because whether it is heroin or whether it is a counterfeit prescription opioid pill, sellers often stomp that drug with fentanyl to make their money go farther. The chemicals to make illicit fentanyl are imported from Mexico and from China and other parts of Asia. And then the illicit fentanyl is cooked here by people who then sell it. We know that when the pandemic worsened the opioid epidemic, it hit particular communities harder because of their otherwise deficient access to medical care. We saw, for example, that in poor communities, especially poor communities among people of color, that the opioid epidemic, at least insofar as their outcomes, was dramatically worse during the pandemic than people who were more affluent and otherwise overusing opioids. Today, more Americans die of opioid overdoses each year than die of car crashes or gun violence. To the extent that the worst of the COVID pandemic is over in America, that we're beginning to return to a more normal life, that more people are vaccinated, that more businesses are reopening. It is our hope that this twindemic, that the opioid epidemic will begin to ebb too, but so far it hasn't. The opioid epidemic is not the same epidemic throughout America. In the state of Texas, for example, by far, most of the overprescribed opioids were hydrocodone. In Appalachia, the most prolifically overprescribed opioid was oxycodone. Now, let's start first with Appalachia and oxycodone. The reason that oxycodone was so overprescribed in Appalachia is because that is where Purdue Pharma and then other drug companies targeted physicians with promotional lies the most aggressively. In Appalachia, you have large working class communities that suffer work-related injuries and all too often don't have access to adequate health care. Purdue Pharma and then other drug companies targeted those communities in places like Ohio and Tennessee and West Virginia and Western Virginia and Georgia with the notion that it's not expensive to relieve their pain. It's not dangerous to relieve their pain. It's your absolute duty to relieve their pain and you can do so safely, effectively, and inexpensively with this pill, long-acting opioids, principally OxyContin. However, in the state of Texas, we had a law called triple prescription, 
or sometimes called triple script. We had that law enacted in 1981. What that law said in effect was class two controlled substances in order to be prescribed by a physician require more paperwork and more hands-on contact with a patient than class three opioids. Let me give you an example. Oxycodone drugs like Oxycontin, Percodan, Percocet being class two controlled substances. If a physician was to prescribe that drug, they could only do so based on an in-person physical exam of the patient each time they not only prescribed the drug, but agreed to refill it. Moreover, when the physician prescribed a class two controlled substance like oxycodone, they had to fill out forms in triplicate. They had to create paper copies, including one to be sent to the Texas Board of Pharmacy. They found that cumbersome sometimes. But a class three controlled substance like hydrocodone, not only did they not have to fill out in triplicate any such forms, nor send one to the Texas Board of Pharmacy, they could prescribe it by telephone. That made all the difference in the world to some physicians. Now, hydrocodone was misclassified. It should never have been a class three controlled substance. However, it was not until 2014 that the DEA finally agreed to reclassify it over the objection of hydrocodone manufacturers. Once they did so, the amount of hydrocodone prescribing in Texas went precipitously down. But we live with the aftermath of that overprescribing today in the form of continuing opioid addiction and overdose deaths. To contextualize the effects of prescription opioid oversupply, both in terms of its consequences and the consequences of those consequences. Let's consider Dallas County, Texas as a case study. According to ARCOS data, which is a DEA database and is now available for public evaluation during the years of 2006 through 2014, more than 500 million opioid dosage units were shipped into Dallas County by wholesale distributors to their pharmacy customers. Dosage units are the opioid pills or patches themselves rather than the actual prescriptions. According to IQVIA data for the years 1997 to 2017, a 20-year period, Dallas County physicians and dentists prescribed over 1.6 billion dosage units of opioids to a population that over that period ranged between 2 million and 2.5 million people. IQVIA data is a privately curated database of prescriptions that is available to drug companies for purchase, which they use to hone marketing rather than to identify problem prescribers. From 2004 onward, physicians in Dallas County 
consistently prescribed 30 opioid units per person each year, enough for each resident of Dallas County to take an opioid every day for a month, every year. In the year 2011, that number in Dallas County was 50 opioid dosage units per person. The predictable outcome from that opioid prescribing actually occurred. Opioid prescribing skyrocketed in Dallas County, so too did addiction, overdoses, and opioid-related death. In the year 2020, Dallas County experienced more opioid overdose deaths than it had at any other time in its history, a pattern which is consistent with communities all around our nation. What's important to understand about the healthcare survey that was conducted in Dallas County is that it found that 9% of the population of Dallas County, based on the survey sample, of people ages 14 and older were dependent upon prescription opioids. That's setting aside addictions to heroin, and other illicit opioids that are often a consequence of prescription opioid overuse. One of the real problems associated with opioid oversupply is how many access points that many addictive pills in medicine cabinets in homes all across the community create. Every day in America, a teenager goes into the medicine cabinet of their grandmother, who instead of receiving a three-day prescription as recommended by the CDC for her arthritis pain, receives a 90-day prescription to take as needed. And he or she goes in looking around the medicine cabinet for whatever and sees these pills, may or may not have an understanding that the oxycodone pills on the bottle are something you can get high on. But assuming they do, takes one and feels a euphoria they've never felt before. The next time, they take four or five and go meet up with their friends. And all of a sudden, kids get turned on to opioids that were prescribed by a legitimate, well-intended doctor but in an amount that is simply too dangerous to prescribe at any one time to any one person. It's very common in Texas and in other communities around the country for kids to have pharma parties where they take opioids out of the medicine cabinets of older people that live in their home and they put them in a jar or a bowl and each one just picks out a potluck and takes it. The problem is, is that these drugs are so addictive that even experimenting once or twice can be all that it takes. In other words, that might be all that it takes to become addicted. That might be all that it takes to die. And that's part of the problem. And it's a recurrent problem every day, somewhere, too many places all over America. One of the central themes, which was totally false and knowingly false, that opioid drug companies promoted to physicians was that there was no such thing as a maximum or ceiling dose for opioids for their patients. 
That is to say, it is an indisputable medical fact that as a person takes opioids over a period of days, their body develops tolerance for those opioids. In other words, they need more opioid to achieve the same pain relieving effect. The concept of a ceiling dose or a maximum dose essentially has two components. One is, is that there is a dose at which it is simply not safe, that the risks no longer uh, are, are lesser than the benefits. The second is, is that there's some point at which above that dose, you're just not going to get improved pain relief. Many medications have a maximum or ceiling dose where it is well understood that above this dose, it's dangerous, and above this dose, it's not any more effective than it is at a more moderate dose. But opioid drug companies, manufacturers in particular, promoted the lie that that's not true with respect to prescription opioids. That of course the doses have to be escalated in order to achieve the same pain relieving effect. But that there's nothing wrong with that because these drugs aren't addictive. And that there's nothing wrong with that because the risk of overdose can be easily managed so long as this person remains under proper medical supervision. The result of those lies is that we created a generation of people who are addicted to high dose opioids, some of whom cannot be effectively tapered off, and all of whom are at an extremely high risk of overdose deaths because of the high dosages they're taking. The worst example of successful opioid drug company lobby, and there have been several, was the Marino Bill. In 2016, opioid drug companies, especially wholesale distributors, through their lobby, successfully wrote, promoted, and had passed a bill that stripped the DEA effectively of its power to suspend the licenses of DEA registrants like wholesale distributors who were disregarding their duties to maintain effective systems of control against diversion of opioid drugs. Now it's important to understand that bill was guised as being a patient friendly bill, that its purpose was to make sure that people with desperate health conditions could receive the medicines they needed without inappropriate interference by the DEA. But in truth, it was simply a response by wholesale distributors who've been fined by DEA for their violations of their regulatory duties to just make sure that didn't happen again by taking from the DEA the power to force them to meet their regulatory obligations. In his book, Empire of Pain, Patrick Radden Keefe reminds us that the opioid epidemic in America is, among other things, a parable about the awesome power of private industry, in this case, big pharma, to compromise public institutions. It's also important to understand that there has long been a revolving door between DEA and FDA and drug companies. When drug companies find that someone in a regulatory position is a problem or a friend. It is not uncommon at all for them to then hire that person 
at significantly more salary than they would ever make working for the government. For example, when OxyContin was approved by FDA in 1995, one of the things that Purdue Pharma was allowed to include by the permission of the FDA in the package insert associated with the drug was that OxyContin may reduce the risk of opioid abuse. Now that's preposterous. There was not anywhere near adequate medical support for that claim. However, they found, they being Purdue Pharma, at FDA, a friend and a person named Curtis Wright, who at that time was responsible for whether or not to approve pain drugs. Shortly a year after OxyContin was approved by FDA, Curtis Wright went to work for Purdue Pharma at a salary exponentially higher than the one he made for the government. The opioid epidemic inflicts not only untold human misery, but crushing economic burden. Several previous studies have determined where the opioid economic burden hits the hardest. Healthcare programs, the criminal justice system, child and family assistance, medical examiner's office, and other opioid-related mortality costs, and in lost human productivity. A study by the White House Council of Economic Advisors calculated that the cost of the opioid epidemic in America is over $550 billion a year. A more recent study calculated that the cost of the opioid epidemic in the year 2017 was over a trillion dollars. On average, people suffering from opioid addiction have health care costs that are four times that of people of similar age who are not addicted to opioids. That is largely because opioid addiction is strongly associated with other chronic life-threatening conditions such as HIV and hepatitis C. Opioid use disorder is a lifelong disease and the cost of treating an individual for that disease, apart from any other healthcare costs, is upwards of $700,000. That is because it takes a lifetime of care to maintain recovery. Healthcare economists have calculated the cost for Dallas County to significantly reduce the impact of the opioid epidemic over the next 30 years. The price tag is over $10 billion, which Dallas County taxpayers, unsurprisingly, cannot afford. The high cost of recovery is the subject of a lawsuit that Dallas County has filed against opioid drug companies, specifically manufacturers and wholesale distributors. The Dallas County alleges glutted the county with millions of medically unnecessary opioid prescriptions. One of the defendants in the Dallas County case, Johnson & Johnson, has agreed to settle. Johnson & Johnson has pledged to pay $297 million to the state of Texas and its political subdivisions, including Dallas County. If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast 
are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or host. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Council. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon. On the next episode of Outside Council, I sit down with Dr. Andrew Kolodny, Medical Director of Opioid Policy Research at the Heller School and co-founder of Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. Together, we explore and unpack the possible remedies and solutions for the opioid crisis and investigate some of the current resources and programs available for people who are suffering from opioid addiction.